0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 229, The Battle of Baton Rouge. This week, we take our first look at Spain's actual entry into the war, Recall that Spain had entered into a treaty with France in May of 1779, which meant that it would go to war with Britain. Spain did not enter into any treaty of alliance with the United States. Spain's primary interest in entering the war seems to be the recovery of several colonies lost to Britain in earlier conflicts, and particularly recovery of British-occupied Gibraltar at the southern border of Spain. The treaty with France obligated France to remain in the war until the two countries forced Britain out of Gibraltar. The treaty term said nothing about the United States. The Spanish king, Carlos III, was reluctant to enter the war at all. Although he was no friend of Great Britain, he was nervous about the idea of encouraging American colonies to rebel against a European monarch if they did not like his rule. Spain controlled most of North and South America at the time, as well as much of the West Indies. It really didn't want to set the precedent that would lead to wars of liberation throughout the Americas. Having committed to enter the war, Spain would proceed with efforts to recover land from a weakened and divided Britain. In July of 1779, the Crown issued orders to its colonial leaders, authorizing them to attack British possessions where they thought they could take land. One of those colonial leaders was Bernardo de Galvez of Louisiana. A governor-general, Bernardo de Galvez had been born in southern Spain, the son of a prominent military general who would later serve as a viceroy in New Spain. At a young age, Bernardo received formal military training at Spain's top military academy. His education was cut short by the Seven Years' War. By age 16, Galvez was a lieutenant and part of an offensive to invade Portugal, which was largely defended at the time by British regulars. Following the end of the war, Galvez served in a joint Spanish-French regiment where he learned to speak French, something that would serve him well in his future career. A few years later, he made his first trip to America, where he served in New Spain, fighting to help conquer the Apaches. Although Spain laid claims to all of North America west of the Mississippi at the time, its hold on the area north of modern-day Mexico was rather tenuous. It planted a few missions, but native tribes still resisted Spanish authority in much of the area. Galvez got his experience as an Indian fighter and survived several serious wounds. He returned to Europe for a time and was involved in a failed effort to invade Algiers. Throughout this time, Galvez impressed his superiors as an effective and daring officer. By 1776, Galvez was a full colonel and teaching at the military academy at Avila. That same year, he received an appointment, effective January 1, 1777, to become the new governor of the Louisiana Territory. Louisiana was not among the prime Spanish colonies in America it had traditionally been a French territory. When the Seven Years' War ended, France turned over Quebec and its other holdings in Canada to Britain. At that point, France's hold on Louisiana was pretty tenuous. Outside of a small detachment in New Orleans, there was no significant military presence in the territory. Louisiana had continually cost France more than they gained from the colony, and with the British colonies in North America pushing west, Versailles only saw increasing defense costs in the colony's future. So, near the end of the Seven Years' War, France turned over the Louisiana Territory to its ally, Spain. This was ostensibly to compensate Spain for its losses of other colonies during the war, but it really seems that France just didn't see a way that Louisiana would not just become a financial sinkhole and was happy to be rid of it. France probably figured that Britain would demand all of Louisiana at the end of the Seven Years' War, combining it with conquered Quebec. So, it made sense for France to secretly sign away the territory which it did in the Treaty of Fontainebleau with Spain, ceding Louisiana in 1762. This was the year before it signed the Treaty of Paris with Britain in 1763, which finally ended the Seven Years' War. Spain, of course, already claimed all of the lands to the south and west of Louisiana. Its territories in Mexico held valuable silver mines and were a major profit center for the Spanish Empire. Spain had ceded east and west Florida to Britain in exchange for the return of Cuba at the end of the Seven Years' War. So, Louisiana served as a buffer between British encroachment and New Spain in what we today call Mexico. The French residents of Louisiana were not quite so happy about becoming Spanish subjects. For all of its size, Louisiana was still mostly Indian territory, with few Europeans living there. Most of the 7,500 or so French-speaking colonists lived in and around New Orleans. Roughly one-third of those were slaves of African descent. A few French traders continued to operate up the Mississippi River bringing furs to New Orleans for sale. In 1764, two years after Louisiana became Spanish, the French residents of Louisiana founded St. Louis, or St. Louis, in what we today call Missouri. For the first few years of Spanish rule, not much really changed. Spain seemed to have as little interest in ruling Louisiana as the residents did about living under Spanish rule. A Frenchman by the name of Jean-Jacques Blaise d'Abadie had been running Louisiana for the French and was tasked with overseeing the transition to Spanish rule. In 1764, about a year and a half after France gave Louisiana to Spain, authorities informed Abadie that he could just continue to run the territory on behalf of Spain. So, on the ground, little changed. The locals still spoke French, exchanged money and French livres, even continued to fly the French flag over the city. When Governor d'Avedy died the following year, the senior military officer in the colony, French Captain Charles-Philippe Aubrey, took over the administration. That same year, the locals sent a delegation to France to try to convince King Louis to take back control of Louisiana. The king had no interest in doing so and refused to give them an audience. In 1776, about three and a half years after Louisiana became Spanish, Madrid finally sent its own governor, Antonio de Ochoa, to New Orleans. De Ochoa arrived in April with about 90 soldiers and a handful of civil servants to run the territory. Seeing that Louisiana still seemed mostly French and unsure whether he could compel the locals to obey him, de Ochoa did not formally even present his credentials. He allowed French Captain Aubrey to continue running the government and he sent requests to his superiors in Havana asking for more soldiers to help enforce his administration. But he could not get any assistance. Finally, in 1767, de Ochoa held a ceremony at the Spanish fort of La Balise to take control of Louisiana. But even after that, he really didn't do much of anything. He raised the Spanish flag at Fort La Balise, but the French flag still flew at New Orleans. Everyone just seemed to be taking their time in the Big Easy, not worrying too much about laws or governments. It wasn't until 1768 that de Ushua began taking action by cracking down on the massive smuggling at New Orleans. Spanish tariffs and trade restrictions had been virtually ignored for years. Merchant vessels had been coming and going at will, with almost nothing being paid to officials. The governor's attempts to get locals to obey the laws that had been on the books for years and to pay tariffs was too much for the locals to take. Several French locals, still holding official positions in the Spanish government, encouraged the locals to fight back. Riots broke out in New Orleans in October of 1768. Governor de Ochoa, still without any real military support, just boarded a ship and left Louisiana. The locals, having won, put in place their own government again, reinstated Aubrey as governor, and sent delegations to France, begging the king once again to please take back the territory. Once again, the king ignored their pleas. Meanwhile, Spain decided it needed to get serious about Louisiana. It sent Alejandro O'Reilly to put down the revolt, O'Reilly was an Irish-born soldier who had taken a Spanish commission as a young man and had risen through the ranks of the Spanish army during the War of Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War. He had more recently set up Spanish military defences at Puerto Rico and married a Cuban woman from a leading Spanish family. O'Reilly raised a force of about twenty one hundred Cubans with a fleet of twenty-three ships and sailed for New Orleans. The of force was enough for the locals to accept O'Reilly as the new leader. The bloodless return of power to Spain took place quickly, and the Spanish flag finally flew over New Orleans. O'Reilly called in nine of the ringleaders of the revolt to hear their reasons for the overthrow of Deo When they arrived, he told them that they had committed treason and that they were all under arrest. Six of the men eventually hanged. Other prominent members of the revolt were imprisoned in Cuba or exiled from Louisiana. The properties of many elite families involved in the revolt were confiscated. The local Creoles were taken aback by the brutal response to what had been a bloodless event up until this time. They gave him the nickname Bloody O'Reilly for executing leaders from some of the top Creole families, but the actions drove home that Louisiana was in fact Spanish and that trying to change that would be dealt with harshly. After less than a year, O'Reilly left in 1770, turning over command to Luis de Uzaga. Although Uzaga had served under O'Reilly and participated in the crackdown, his tenure as governor tried to restore good relations with the locals. Uzaga granted pardons to many of the revolt leaders who were still in prison, and married the daughter of an elite Creole family. Under his rule, Louisiana's seemed to accept Spanish rule. It was under Unzaga's administration that he began corresponding with General George Washington, and appears to have provided some military assistance to the rebellion in the British colonies. Unzaga also opened up the port of New Orleans to Patriot privateers and merchant ships, all during the time when Spain was still officially a neutral party. After Gonzaga received a promotion to become Captain General of Venezuela, Bernardo de Galvez became Louisiana's new governor in 1777. Galvez inherited a sparsely populated colony that bordered British West Florida and which also had a 1,300-mile border with the British colonies along the Mississippi River. The French locals had accepted Spanish rule, but were still wary of it. Galvez, soon after taking office, married a daughter of a prominent Creole family. In fact, she was the sister of Unzaga's wife. Galvez continued the policies of allowing American shipping into New Orleans and permitted military supplies to be taken up the Mississippi River, then to the Ohio River, where it eventually reached the Americans via Fort Pitt. So, even before Spain got involved in the war, it covertly assisted the American rebellion, mostly to weaken its enemy Britain. However, as I said, unlike its ally France, Spain never formed an alliance with the United States during the war. When Spain declared war on Britain in June of 1779, it allied with France but made no treaty with the United States. King Carlos ordered that Spanish soldiers would not fight alongside the Americans. Instead, Spain would focus on taking more colonies in America and around the world from its enemy Britain. Days after Spain declared war on Britain, the Ministry in London sent secret orders to General John Campbell in Pensacola, West Florida, ordering him to attack New Orleans and take control of Spanish Louisiana. Campbell was a long-time veteran of the British Army, having fought in the Jacobite Rising, the War of Austrian Succession, and the Seven Years' War. He came to America as a colonel in 1776 under General Cornwallis, serving in the New York Campaign, and in late 1778 led a raid on Egg Harbor in New Jersey. See episode 199. Shortly after that, he received a promotion to brigadier general and command of West Florida, headquartered in Pensacola. West Florida includes what we today call the Florida Panhandle, as well as what is today southern Alabama, Mississippi, and part of Louisiana. It extended all the way to the Mississippi River, right to the border with Spanish-controlled New Orleans, with Britain's western outposts at Baton Rouge. Campbell complained that he had almost no soldiers to defend this colony. He had brought a few companies of Loyalists and Germans to supplement the two regiments of regulars that were in West Florida, but he found the colony's defenses to be in no condition to fend off any serious attack. He also noted that he had no money to pay his soldiers and had to give them paper notes for several months. Campbell sent repeated calls for more soldiers, guns, and money, but got rather little. Instead, London promoted him to Major General and told him to work it out with what he had. When war with Spain finally did come in June, the Ministry ordered Campbell to attack New Orleans. Secretary of State Germain authorized him to work with the Navy in Jamaica in order to get the support he needed for such an invasion. Unfortunately, General Campbell never received those orders. Instead, they were intercepted by a ship that delivered them to the Spanish governor, Galvez. Once aware that Spain and Britain were officially at war and that Britain had orders to attack Louisiana, Galvez decided that the best defense was a good offense. The first target for Galvez was Fort Butte, a small British garrison on the British side of the Mississippi River, a little over 100 miles upriver from New Orleans. The fort had only about two dozen Hessian soldiers. Galvin had received the notification of war and the British attack plans in late July. By the end of August, he had recruited a force of about 600 soldiers, about a quarter of which had been Spanish regulars. The remainder were new recruits, along with about 60 local militia and 10 American volunteers under the command of Oliver Pollock. As he led his army toward Fort Butte, he was joined by more volunteers, so that nearly 1,400 men in total joined the campaign. Many of these were Native American warriors. Several dozen of the volunteers were free blacks living in Louisiana. While the main column lost several hundred of these men to desertion during the march, they still were no match for the handful of defenders at Fort Butte. When Galvez arrived with his army on September 6th, He had to inform the local garrison that, yes, Spain and Britain were at war, and he demanded their surrender. The garrison refused at first. It was already late in the day when Galvez arrived, so he waited until morning to begin his attack. The fight that morning has been described as only a light skirmish, after which the garrison surrendered. One defender was killed, a sentry at the fort, and two others were wounded. Six others managed to escape and make their way to Baton Rouge, about ten miles further upriver, to warn the larger garrison there of the coming attack. Galvez rested his men for six days, preparing for the more serious battle against Baton Rouge. On September twelfth, the Spanish army approached Baton Rouge. The British commander there, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Dixon, commanded a larger force of about 400 regulars, Supplemented by about 150 Loyalist militia. Dixon had recognized early on that Fort Butte was not really defensible, which is why he left only a token force there. Instead, the British officer had used his time in the prior few weeks building Fort New Richmond. The defenses included a high earthen wall, a moat, chateau de frise, and 13 cannon. The Spanish under Galvez had brought cannons but the soldiers arrived well before the cannons did. So the Spanish forces surrounded the fort to prevent communications with other British garrisons that were further upriver, but they didn't have the firepower quite yet to take down the British defenses. Galvez sent his militia through a wooded area to test the British defenses, and the British cannons opened up on the attackers with massed volleys. Because the attackers were in a wooded area, most of the men were able to take cover— and the Spanish only took three fatal casualties. The Spanish laid siege for several weeks as Galvez awaited the arrival of his cannons by ship. Once they arrived, Galvez had a portion of his army make a great deal of noise at night to draw British attention and fire. At the same time, on the other side of the fort, Galvin had other soldiers dig trenches and install his cannons for use against the fort. The following morning, September 21st, Galvez opened fire on the fort. After a three-hour artillery duel, Galvez paused and offered the British the opportunity to surrender. Colonel Dixon accepted. Part of the surrender terms included an agreement that Fort Panmure, at modern-day Natchez, which was about 90 miles upriver from Baton Rouge, would also surrender its garrison of 80 men. Galvez sent a contingent of 50 men along with a British messenger to take Fort Panmure. The British commander there was obviously perturbed that Colonel Dixon had surrendered his force without any consultation and accused Dixon of throwing his garrison under the bus to get better terms for his own garrison. Despite his annoyance, Dixon followed orders and surrendered the fort. With the surrender of Fort Butte, Fort New Richmond, and Fort Panmure. The Spanish took complete control of the Mississippi River and the western portion of West Florida. Spanish privateers also captured several British supply ships on the river and on Lake Pontchartrain, including one with 54 German soldiers aboard. Galvez left the bulk of his regulars at Baton Rouge and returned to New Orleans with about 50 soldiers to celebrate his victory. As a reward for his initiative, Galvin would get a commission as a Spanish general. A few days after Fort Panmure surrendered, a British messenger arrived at the fort, warning the commander that Spain and Britain were at war and that he should join General Campbell in Pensacola for an attack on New Orleans. So, Campbell was finally getting the word out, but it was far too late. Spain had taken the initiative and secured the region. Next week, we're going to head back up to New York as General John Sullivan takes on the effort to clear out the Iroquois and secure upstate New York for the Patriots. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential... And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Lee Seeham. My Patreon supporters really help to make this podcast possible by helping to cover my expenses. If you can make a contribution on Patreon.com for as little as $2 a month, you are helping me to make this podcast happen. Thanks also to Christian Howard, Brendan Boyle, J.P. McFadden, Paul Wood, Janet Lane, John Fezzana, Mary Bausch Graves, who all joined as Minutemen over the past few months. All of my Patreon supporters get the benefit of receiving an ad-free copy of each episode prior to the general release. Supporters at the standard-bearer level or higher, which starts at $10 a month, also receive a free flag magnet each month. Each magnet is a different flag from the American Revolution. My thanks to Ron Polka, Tony Bruniel, John Campbell, and Leah McKahy, who all joined as standard bearers recently. I have to admit I was a little bummed that I hadn't received any PayPal donations for a while. Then I realized that my email provider was sending my PayPal notifications to spam. So, thanks to David McGowan, Paul Kallenberger... Joshua Peters, Steve Parker, Jonathan French, Thomas Hodge, and Bob Jordan, all for recent PayPal gifts, most of which I probably should have acknowledged sooner than this. Thanks also to Brett McCaffrey and Alex Millmeister for donations via Venmo. I'm glad to hear Alex found a good use for the podcast. Besides just listening to it, it apparently helps his six-year-old daughter fall asleep. As a parent myself, I know how valuable that can be. I have links to all the different ways you can support the show at the bottom of each blog episode. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for all the details. So this week we covered the Spanish entry into the war with Bernardo de Galvez taking Baton Rouge. Spain's involvement in the revolution is kind of a matter of controversy these days. There seems to be many sources that are trying to establish that Spain deserves more credit for its assistance to the United States. Personally, I don't really see the evidence for that. Yes, Spain did provide some covert aid and they did give assistance to American shipping, but unlike France, Spain never allied with the U.S. and never signed a treaty with the U.S. and was instructed not to have its soldiers fight alongside the Continental Army. Now, I think Much of the controversy that's going on today has a little bit more to do with modern politics. People from certain ethnic groups may want to emphasize or even overemphasize their participation in these past events. I I think we saw the same thing a century ago when we saw the roles of Irish Catholics being overemphasized at a time when Irish Catholic immigrants were making up a larger proportion of the American population. So that may be a similar thing that we're seeing with the Spanish involvement today. To the extent you want to focus on the role of Spain in the war, that's fine. I've just been trying to keep it in context. Spain did, throughout the war, aid the American cause with both money and access to supplies and ports. Certainly, the American situation was desperate enough that you can make the argument that every little bit helped, and Spain's efforts did certainly, indirectly at least, benefit the American cause. But, as I said, Spain was reluctant to give full support to the effort. The fear of setting an independence precedent for Spain's colonies in America was always there. The fear of perhaps a revolution in favor of rights and equality in Spain itself could happen someday as well. Certainly, France went in that direction, so if I was the Spanish king, I think I made the right decision. So my hope is to characterize what happened and just let others judge those facts. Another interesting fact that I mentioned only in passing in the main episode was the use of free black volunteers in the Spanish Brigade. Spain did, of course, practice slavery in the Americas. Although Portugal was the leading enslaver, Spain was a strong second. Even so, the path out of slavery in Spanish America seemed to be quite possible. Slaves could purchase their freedom from their masters, and there were commonly manumissions of slaves. So while there are large numbers of African slaves that were being imported at the time Spain controlled Louisiana, the number of free Africans in Louisiana grew substantially during this time as well. Bernardo de Galvez will continue to play a major role in America during and after the Revolution. His capture of Baton Rouge was only the beginning of events that we will see grow in future episodes. The city of Galveston, Texas is named in his honor. If you want to read more about Galvez, my book recommendation is a biography called Bernardo de Galvez, Spanish Hero of the American Revolution, by Gonzalo M. Quintero Saravia. It is a pretty substantial biography of Galvez at over 600 pages, and it was published in 2018. The author is a Spanish diplomat who has written extensively on Spanish history in America. He's also a former fellow from Harvard University. If you want to read more about the history of Louisiana more generally during this time, my online recommendation is a public domain book on archive.org called The History of Louisiana, the Spanish Domination, by Charles Gayare. It was published in 1867 and covers the colony from 1769, when General O'Reilly arrives to take control on behalf of Spain, through the 1803 Purchase, by the United States. It's a pretty thorough book at over 600 pages and I think is a thoughtful look at that interesting period in Louisiana's history. As always, you can search for the book on archive.org or use the direct link on my blog or website. My question this week asks, Since George III was king of Hanover, did Germany or whatever it was back then help him against the rebellious American colonists in the American Revolutionary War. Well, King George III of Britain was also the elector of Hanover, not the king, which meant that he controlled that small German state, and the title of elector comes from the fact that he had a role in electing the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, a process which I might add was purely ceremonial. Hanover did not send any units directly to America during the war. However, five battalions of Hanoverian soldiers were deployed to Gibraltar and Menorca in order to free up British regulars in those areas to deploy to America. King George did, of course, hire tens of thousands of other soldiers from other German states to fight in America. The majority of these came from Hesse Castle, which was ruled by King George's uncle. German leaders often rented their armies to allies in order to help cover the costs of maintaining such large armies in relatively small states. The king also rented from a few other German states as well, and tens of thousands of them fought alongside the British regulars and loyalists, trying to crush the American rebellion. These German-speaking soldiers were generically referred to as Hessians during the war, but as I said, no regiments from Hanover ever deployed to America. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me via email or on social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.